He is risen. Amen. What a day to be together. It's great to see everybody and great to have those who are joining us through the live stream to be here with us this morning. What does Easter mean to you? In our culture, we often associate Easter with colored eggs and uh, chocolate and uh, jelly beans, uh, rabbits, baby chicks, marshmallow peeps, not my favorite, but I know some of you get into that. Uh, when I was growing up, though, one of the biggest mysteries on Easter morning, and I don't know if this was true for you, as I collected my Easter basket, would the chocolate bunny be hollow or solid? That was the big mystery of Easter morning. How many of you share that concern? All right, there's quite a few. All right, so how many are, prefer hollow? Yeah, yeah, well, there's one there. All right, so how many prefer the, the solid? Right, it's got to be solid. Now, they're hard, it's harder to break, but boy, is it really good. So that was the big mystery. And actually, I got this one, and I had to, it took me a while, but the good news is this one is solid. So that's very good. So you will not see much of this later. Of course, the true focal point for this day that we call Easter is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I think it's the single biggest event in human history. So what is Easter to you? Are you here today already believing in Jesus' resurrection? Well, I invite you to be refreshed anew with the reality and significance of that resurrection. And are you here with skepticism or doubt or denial of the resurrection did it really happen? Does it really matter? And if that is you, you will see this morning that you're in very good company. And I invite you to consider the facts of Jesus' resurrection as we look at them this morning. In the Bible, all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, contain detailed eyewitness accounts of Jesus' time on earth, including his resurrection. Sadly, we will not be able to look at all of those fascinating details of the resurrection at this time that these gospel writers give us, so I encourage you to spend time reading them at some point on your own. But this morning, we're going to look at Jesus' resurrection from the perspectives of two different groups of people. So before we dig in, I would like to just pause for another moment of prayer to ask the author of the book to give us insight into what he would have us here this morning. Father, we come to you during this time of our service where we give attention to your word that you have left for us. We believe that this is the living and abiding word of God that is not the word of men, but we accept it for what it is, the word of God that does its work in us who believe. And so we pray that this word would do your work in us this morning. Give me clarity of thought and expression. Open all of our hearts and minds to see some new things or perhaps some old things in new ways. And we trust that your spirit would be at work in our midst as we contemplate these things anew on this resurrection day. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I said this morning, we're going to look at Jesus' resurrection from the perspectives of two different groups of people. Uh, but first, we need to look at some details of the eyewitness accounts. And we're going to do so from Matthew 27 and 28. I encourage you to turn in your Bibles uh, to Matthew 27, 
We're going to actually look at this over three days. See, this is a developing news story. There are things that are developing as time goes along. The setting here, we're going to start in Matthew 27, verse 57. Jesus has been on the cross since, six, or since 9 o'clock in the morning, and at 3 o'clock in the afternoon has died. And this is where we pick up the account in verse 57 of Matthew 27. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph. It is probably about 6 p.m. or so. Jesus has been dead for about three hours. And Joseph asked Pilate for permission to take down the body of Jesus from the cross and bury it. Very often, people who were crucified did not have the the luxury or the dignity of being buried. They were often just thrown into a heap to add to their indignity. But Pilate gives permission for Joseph to take the body and bury it. And he lays it, wraps the body in a clean linen shroud, lays it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock, and rolls a great stone at the entrance of the tomb, Matthew tells us, and then went away. And watching this whole process were these two women, Mary Magdalene and who Matthew calls the other Mary. They were sitting there opposite the tomb watching this. I've read as preparing for this, that when he rolled that great stone to the entrance of the tomb, it was constructed in such a way that it settled down into a groove in the rock and it would have required several able-bodied men to push it back out of place. This was no small stone, which Matthew even says, he rolled a great stone. But let's try to enter into the despair that is now felt by those who knew and loved Jesus. We have these two women sitting there watching all of this. They and the other followers of Jesus believed him to be the long-awaited for Savior who would conquer all their enemies, who would bring freedom and justice to the nation. He was the fulfillment of all of their greatest hopes and dreams. And now he was dead, murdered by jealous hatred, and it was all over. Have you ever lost a loved one, especially tragically? So imagine these women and Jesus' other followers feeling that deep pain. In a period of less than 24 hours, their whole life has turned upside down with unspeakable grief. So that's day number one. That is Friday. But let's move on to day number two, starting in verse 62. Matthew says the next day, that is the day after preparation, this would be Saturday. It is sometimes Saturday, and Matthew does not tell us exactly what time it is on Saturday. But those same Jewish religious leaders who had put Jesus to death now come to the Roman governor, Pilate, with a request to make the tomb secure. And you see that there, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest the disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. Their reason for wanting to seal the tomb, amazingly, They were aware of and afraid of Jesus' promise to rise from the dead. 
they were aware that Jesus had predicted ahead of time that he would rise from the dead. They did not want Jesus' followers to come and steal the body and then spread the news that he had risen, far, he had risen from the dead. And notice their language as they're referring to Jesus, this imposter, this man who has committed fraud. He said the last fraud would be worse than the first. What they didn't know, that this idea of resurrection was very far from the disciples' minds, the very followers of Jesus, the one who Jesus had spoken to that he would rise. They were in hiding. They had no expectation he was going to rise from the dead. It was these unbelieving enemies of Jesus that had put him to death were the ones that were worried about his promise that he would rise and did not want the disciples to steal the body. Little did they have to worry. The disciples were nowhere to be found. Pilate grants them their permission to do so. He says, you have a guard, take a guard, do what you want to do. So they secure the tomb with two things. In addition to this heavy stone, there's already a heavy stone across that. But it says here in verse 66, they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. A seal, this seal was probably clay that was imprinted with the Roman imperial seal and secured with ropes. It provided a deterrent and solid evidence if there was tampering. We see that today in, in lots of foods and medications, things. You open the bottle, there's a seal. If that seal is broken, you know that it has been tampered with and you're to leave it alone. This seal served, served the same function. The stone was against the tomb. They sealed it in such a way that if that stone was disturbed in any way, it would be obvious that this tomb had been tampered with. But not only did they have the heavy stone, and now the seal as evidence of it being tampered with, but they set a guard of soldiers. The soldier's job was to prevent anyone from coming to this tomb and stealing the body. This is Saturday. I would again like to ask us to feel the deep, deep grief of those who love Jesus. I'd like to ask you, if you would, just close your eyes as I read this poem, the first part of a poem that was written about Saturday. And let's close our eyes together as we just reflect on this. Saturday, a beaten, abused, broken man lay dead, sealed away, borrowed tomb. Saturday, life died. Hope died, love died, redemption's promise died, the future died, all in that tomb. Saturday, we died, dead in sin, no hope of life. Saturday, darkness lived, grief reigned, earth groaned. You may open your eyes, but as you, we try to feel the grief and the loss that those who loved and followed Jesus were feeling at this time, not only was he now buried and sealed in a tomb, but there was a guard protecting his body and protecting anyone from even getting close. Well, let's go to day three. It is now very early dawn, Sunday morning. Matthew tells us there in chapter 28, verse 1, 
Now after the Sabbath, which was Saturday, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, which was Sunday, he's making clear that we know exactly the time frame here. There is early dawn, Sunday morning. The two women who had been at the tomb earlier, sitting opposite and watching what Joseph was doing, returned to add further spices to the body. We learn that not from here, but in Mark and Luke's uh, account of the story, they tell us that they were bringing spices for extra anointing. And Mark tells us on their way, they knew they had a problem. Who would move the stone? So they were on their way to bring spices to anoint Jesus' body to honor him more than he had been honored on Friday, uh, having no clue how they were even going to get into this tomb. Uh, It's not even clear if they knew there was a guard there. They were just concerned about getting the stone moved away. But they arrive at the at the tomb to find at least three things. Verse 2, Behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone. They saw that the stone had already been rolled back by an angel. And they saw that the angel sitting on that stone, verse 2 says, he rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And in verse 5, it says that the angel spoke these words to them. Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee, There you will see him. See, I have told you. Matt uh, Matt referred to Luke's rendition of this, which I just love. The angel says to them, in addition to these words, why are you looking for the living one among the dead? They weren't looking for the living one. They were looking for one who was dead. But the angel asked this obvious question that, that should have been obvious to them. Why are you looking for the living one among the dead? I am sure they were very confused to hear that question. So they see the stone rolled away. They hear the angel's words. And sure enough, they find an empty tomb. The stone is rolled away. The angel invites them to look in and see. Here is where he lay. And they see an empty tomb. And so they leave quickly, it says there. In verse 8, they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. They leave quickly to tell Jesus' disciples what they had seen and heard and experienced. And Jesus himself meets them along the way, physically very alive and well. In verse 9, behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings, hello. They came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. See, this is very important because Jesus who was dead Friday and through Saturday, is now very much alive, physically very alive and well. They actually saw him, talked with him, touched him, heard him speak. They were not just reporting hearsay, and they were not just making this up. So with these events in mind from Friday and Saturday and now Sunday, Let us look in more detail at the two responses I said before. There are only two 
responses. There are two here, and really only two responses to Jesus' resurrection. And all of us fall into one or the other of these responses that we're going to look at this morning. So pay attention to see what group you fall into in your responses. The first response is illustrated for us by these women. Remember, the women had loved him very much and were going to the tomb that morning in deep despair and overwhelming grief. They were going to mourn and to bring additional spices for the body. They were not expecting to find an empty tomb. They were certainly not expecting to find that Jesus had risen from the dead. You might say that in terms of their expectation of Jesus being raised from the dead, they were living in unbelief. They did not believe that Jesus was going to be rising from the dead. But after the angel tells them that Jesus is risen, they leave quickly to tell the disciples. And I read it before. It says there in verse 8, they departed quickly with fear and great joy. Fear and great joy. Both at the same time. It's an interesting combination. Why fear? Fear because something very powerful has just happened that is so far beyond human experience that it is unbelievable and scary, even if it is good. Something so powerful had just happened that is so far beyond human experience that it is unbelievable and scary, even if very good. And they leave with great joy because the reality of Jesus actually coming back from the dead far surpasses anything they could have hoped for and dreamed for. And even though, and this is important, even though Jesus had told them he would rise, they obviously didn't believe it. And they didn't expect to see it. This was totally beyond their wildest imaginations. But when they were confronted with the reality of his resurrection, they gradually accepted it, and their lives were changed forever. We've been doing a study in the book of Acts, which will continue actually next week, which tells the story of the changed lives of some of these people of Jesus' followers after this resurrection. But they were not expecting to see this resurrection. But when they were confronted with the reality, They gradually accepted it and embraced it wholeheartedly. So what is the first response to Jesus' resurrection? It is unbelief that grows into belief of the truth when faced with the facts. They did not show up at this tomb believing that Jesus would rise from the dead. But they came with unbelief that grew into belief of the truth when faced with the facts. So what was the second response? Well, do you remember the guards? The guards, right? They're there. Let's look at verse 4. What's happening to the guards this time? Well, let's look at verse 3. The angel came down. We read about that in verse 2. And verse 3 says, His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. The guards are witnesses of all that the women had just seen and heard. They are there. They are present. They are watching all of this. But they're totally immobilized in fear. But again, they saw it all. They heard it all. 
And then notice in verse 11 what they do. While they were going, that is, while the women were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. It says some of the guard went into the city. What does that tell you if some of the guard went into the city? There was more than one who went into the city, which means there was more than one at the tomb. Likely a detachment of soldiers was four, at least, to be guarding the tomb. So there were three, four, or more guards who had witnessed all of this. That is, there was more than one. There were several soldiers who witnessed all of this had happened, some of whom go into the city. And Matthew tells us they went right to the chief priests to tell them what had taken place. These chief priests, the same ones who had arrested Jesus Thursday night, given him the trial Friday morning in the middle of the night, and had him crucified, insisted that he be crucified. These are the same ones who requested the seal and the guard at the tomb. And the soldiers tell them, Matthew tells us, all that had taken place. I can imagine them running into the city. Caiaphas, Annas, angels, stone, white, white. I don't, what happened? Right? The confusion. I can't imagine them going in and trying to explain. And you hear Annas and Caiaphas, slow down, slow down. Tell us what happened. What's going on? And the chief priests and elders realize they suddenly have a problem. In verse 12, they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel. They came up with a plan. They confer together because they now have a huge problem. And what do they do? They offer the soldiers a sufficient sum of money and say, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. Don't miss the terrible, comical almost, irony of this whole thing. The ones who wanted to prevent the disciples from stealing the body and spreading a lie now agree to spread the lie that they stole the body. Right? That was the whole purpose of the stone, the seal, the guards, they wanted to prevent the lie that the disciples came and stole the body and started saying that Jesus was alive, are now spreading the lie that the disciples stole the body. So what do they have to do for the soldiers? Well, there's two things they have to do for the soldiers. One is the soldiers saw all of this, so what do they do? All that Matthew says is they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers. I don't know how much money you would have to pay them to buy their silence or to buy their lies, not even their silence, to buy their active lies, but I'm sure that they made out quite well on this. But they also promised the soldiers to win over Pilate and they say, keep you out of trouble. That's a, that's a euphemism for keep you alive. Thus, when I think of the women leaving the tomb with fear and great joy, I think of these soldiers leaving the tomb with fear and great dread. Why? Because these soldiers failed to prevent what they were charged to do. They were charged to prevent this tomb from being emptied. They failed 
at that charge. Not only did they fail at that, but they are admitting that they fell asleep on the job. His disciples came and stole the body away while we were sleeping. Either one of those offenses by themselves would have been enough to have them executed by their superiors. So when the chief priests and the elders say, if this comes to, to Pilate's ears, to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. What they're really saying is we will keep you alive. Just take this money, tell this story, and we're going to cover for you. And Matthew tells us, so they took the money, in verse 15, they took the money and did as they were directed, and this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Don't miss what just happened. These leaders and the soldiers chose to believe and proclaim what they knew to be a lie. These leaders and soldiers chose to believe and proclaim what they knew to be a lie rather than believe the only truly logical conclusion that Jesus had actually risen from the dead. The soldiers had witnessed this, told the chief priests this, and they chose to rather believe and proclaim what they knew to be a lie rather than believe the only truly logical conclusion that Jesus had actually risen from the dead. What's really amazing is that these religious leaders themselves provided some of the clearest proof of the resurrection. In a sense, they were hostile witnesses to their own cause. Jesus left behind an empty tomb in spite of their best efforts to prevent that from happening. Their failed efforts to prevent an empty tomb provided very strong proof of what they themselves did not want to believe and refused to accept. They were making sure that body was not leaving the tomb. And that body left the tomb anyway, in spite of their best efforts to stop it. And it happened in a way that there was no way they could stop it, because Jesus actually rose from the dead, and an angel came down and moved the stone. Their attempt to prevent this from happening provides some of the greatest proof that it actually happened, because they did everything in their power to stop it. So the first response was unbelief that grows into belief in the truth when faced with the facts. What's the second response? Unbelief that grows into rejecting the truth when faced with the facts. Unbelief that grows into rejecting the truth when faced with the facts. They would rather believe their lies than the reality that Jesus Christ actually rose from the dead. Because if they believe that, they cannot continue living life the way they want to live life. They need to live life according to what God has ordained for them. And that's a cost too great for them to pay. Over the centuries, there have been other attempts to deny the resurrection. I'm just going to go through a short list and quickly. One of the common arguments is the women went to the wrong tomb. Well, first of all, it's extremely unlikely. Secondly, that's an easy one to fix. You just go to the right one. The soldiers knew it. Joseph of Arimathea knew where it was. Chief priests knew where it was. That's an easy one to fix. 
Other objections say, well, it was really a spiritual resurrection. It wasn't a physical resurrection. It was spiritual. It was in their hearts. They had wishful thinking. And as they went to the tomb, they were just hoping he'd be alive again. And when they got there, they found what they were looking for, not because it actually happened, but because they were wishing for it. They were hallucinating or they were having delusions. First, as we see this, they weren't looking for Jesus to be raised from the dead. They were bringing spices to anoint the body. They didn't find what they, as a matter of fact, they didn't find what they were looking for. And secondly, there were multiple witnesses who actually saw and touched Jesus as clear proof of a physical, bodily resurrection. Another common theory is that Jesus did not really die on the cross. He just fainted and then revived. Some of us remember a book many years ago called The Passover Plot. That was the the key premise of the Passover plot, that Jesus did not really die, he just fainted, and in the coolness of the tomb revived. Well, what's the objection to that one? Well, the Romans were very good at making sure someone was dead. Crucifixion was not meant to be an execution means that you survived. And the Romans were very good at making sure someone was dead. As a matter of fact, one of the other accounts is Pilate was surprised that Jesus was dead already when Joseph came, and he sent to the centurion to have the centurion come back and confirm, is this man really dead? And the centurion says, yes, this man is really dead. That's when Pilate agreed to give him the body. The Romans were very good at making sure that someone was dead. The scourging, the crucifixion, the spear in the side. And how would he have moved the stone anyway after all of this? There's even a recent illustration of this I came across in preparing for this. A theologian named Barbara Thiering wrote a book in 19, that was published in 1992 called Jesus the Man. Her theory went even further to say not only did Jesus not die on the cross, neither did the other two men on the cross die with him. One of those men who were, was on the cross beside Jesus was a na- man named Simon Magus, who, as it turns out, happened to be a medical doctor. And in the tomb, managed to get a hold of some medicine that he was able to crawl over to and give to Jesus. In spite of the fact that the scriptural record tells us that the soldiers broke the legs of both of these other two men. So Simon Magus, the medical doctor, somehow ended up in the same tomb with Jesus, finds some medicine, is able to crawl over to Jesus, give him some medicine that allows Jesus to revive and get out of the tomb. It takes more faith and is more ridiculous to believe these attempts to explain away the resurrection than it does to believe the plain facts that are right in front of us, that Jesus died and rose again bodily from the dead. It takes more faith and is more ridiculous to believe these stories than to believe the truth. Just because something is unbelievable doesn't mean it's not true. You see, Jesus' resurrection demands a response, and there are only two choices. Where are you? The first is unbelief that grows into belief of the truth when faced with the facts of an empty tomb. The second is unbelief that grows into rejecting the truth when faced with the facts of an empty tomb. Most critics and skeptics today will not deny the existence of an empty tomb. They just try to explain away the significance and the meaning. 
And I'd like to add that to be indifferent, to say, ah, it doesn't matter. To be indifferent is to choose the second option. It's to linger in unbelief that rejects the truth that the facts clearly give us. You see, Jesus' resurrection changes everything. The resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything. Jesus' resurrection gives us hope in the face of death. Jesus' resurrection changes everything we know about death. All of us form an answer to the question of what happens to us after we die. Death is our greatest enemy. Death is our greatest enemy and will never be conquered by us, no matter how advanced our science gets, no matter how advanced our medical technology gets. Death will never be conquered by us. But Jesus crushed death. Jesus put death to death. Jesus gave death a death sentence. Jesus' resurrection tells us that there is life after death. He has done everything necessary to rescue us from sin and death, forgiveness of sins, a new life of meaning and purpose, the establishment of his kingdom, a guaranteed home with him forever in his perfect kingdom when he comes. That's why Paul says in his first letter to the Corinthians, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Jesus' resurrection gives us reason to no longer have a fear of death. And so here's an invitation. If you have never put your faith in Jesus as the one who was crucified for you and for your sins, the one who was raised from the dead to give you a new life, the one who offers forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternal life, I ask you to please accept his invitation to do so today. Believe in his death and resurrection for you. Jesus' resurrection guarantees life for all those who believe now and for eternity. Not only does Jesus' resurrection give hope in the face of death, but Jesus' resurrection also gives hope for the course of our life. Jesus' resurrection changes everything we know about life. First, our hope in this life is deeply rooted in our hope about death. Our belief about death tomorrow can greatly affect how we live today. But also, if God could raise Jesus from the dead, there is nothing he cannot do. There is no sin so terrible that he cannot forgive. There is no disaster or disappointment that Jesus cannot rescue. I cannot make such a mess of my life that Jesus cannot restore. There is no sin pattern that I may be stuck in that he cannot change. There is always hope. Relationships, circumstances, physical illness, financial challenges, jobs, wayward family members, untimely deaths. There is no problem too great that Jesus cannot overcome as proven by the resurrection. In Paul's second letter to the church at Corinth, he relays an account where they, he was pressed, he was struggling, he was under a very difficult trial, and he says this about that trial. He says, we were so utterly burdened, this is in 2 Corinthians 1, you don't have to turn there, but you can write it down. It's 2 Corinthians 1, verses 8 to 10. 
I think this is such a pivotal passage that I keep going back to from time to time. He says, we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired even of life itself. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. On him we have set our hope. You know, we are fond of saying it's not over until it's over. But because of Jesus' resurrection, it's not over even when it's over. Because of Jesus' resurrection, it's not over even when it's over. For these women and Jesus' disciples, it was over. And God said, no, it's not. It's not. Jesus' resurrection proves that God has the power to do whatever is necessary to do what is best for us in this life and forever. So when life gets too hard, when the stress gets too great, when you have failed, God invites us to find our hope in him alone, to live in dependence on the one who has the power to raise the dead. Sometimes resurrection in this life means that God changes my circumstances. Sometimes it means that God changes me. But because of Jesus' resurrection, there is always hope. There is always hope. It was hope that was more more than enough for these women in their deepest despair on Saturday, and it is more than enough for us in our deepest despair in this life. You see, our hope is not in a lifeless religion, but in the living Jesus Christ. So we need to constantly remind one another of these things. Jesus' resurrection gives hope in the face of death, and Jesus' resurrection gives hope for the course of life. I'd like to end this part right now with a period of silent reflection after which I will pray, after which we will come back for a benediction and then be dismissed. But for the silent reflection, perhaps you are in some situation where you feel that all hope is gone. What I'd like you to do is just spend some time reflecting on that situation where you feel that you feel is hopeless, that you feel is beyond your strength, beyond your ability, and spend some time reflecting on the implications of the resurrection for that and ask God to give you the hope in the darkness that you're feeling. So let's spend a few moments in that silent reflection and I'll close this part with a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, we come with, as these women did, with fear and great joy to realize that Jesus' resurrection proves that you have the power to do whatever is necessary to do what is best for us in this life and forever. 
I ask that you would drive this hope deep into our hearts today and going forward as we reflect on these events that we have read about today. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we close, we're back to where we started. What does Easter mean to you? Well, it should mean that there is now life where there was only death before. And for our benediction this morning, I'd like to leave us with an audible benediction. This is the sound of life, the sound of a beating heart. It is what we listen for when assessing a person's health. And it's what we listen for when determining if a person has died. The prolonged absence of a heartbeat is a sure sign that life is over. At 3 p.m. on Friday, Jesus' heartbeat went from this to this. Friday evening, Friday night, Saturday morning, Saturday afternoon, Saturday evening, Saturday night, Sunday morning. Do you hear it? It still brings tears to my eyes to think of how many times I've heard it go one way to have never heard it go this way. In the words of the first verse of Andrew Peterson's song, His Heartbeats, he says this, his heart beats, his blood begins to flow, waking up what was dead a moment ago. And his heart beats, now everything is changed because the blood that brought us peace with God is racing through his veins. And his heart beats, his heart beats. He is risen. He is risen indeed. May God bless you as you go today with the great hope of the resurrection beating in your hearts and minds. God bless you and happy Easter. Amen.